I'm going to mute myself and go feed a cat. So, uh, did I tell you that I got, um, that I, we got a new dog? Oh, yeah, you did. So today's his first day at doggy daycare. We're trying it out because we're going on vacation this summer. And, uh, they, the place that we take them has this, uh, service, I guess you can, this website, you can go and and watch like the cat on camera. Oh, that's (laughs) amazing. So I have like a tab open. I'm constantly just watching. Is buddy okay? Is buddy okay? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. That's fantastic. Yeah. How's your, um, how's your cat doing? <laughs> you know what? He really likes the house we moved into because now he, he, we moved into this spot. It's got this amazing little courtyard in like in between all of the apartments and it attracts birds. Oh. So he's really excited because he just gets to lay there all day and just watch birds. Yeah. It's, that... he's the happiest he's ever been. Cool. Pets are, pets are <laughs> awesome. So anyway, we're we're here. Uh, Suze, how you doing? <laughs> Good, Jeff. How you doing? I'm doing pretty pretty well. Um, this is uh, episode twenty. Big uh, big milestone for us. Hey, congratulations! Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> we're, we're out of our teenage years and into into our uh, into our twenties, which, uh, as anyone can say, is is uh, probably a, a great time of life. Absolutely, time for maturation. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Cool. So, do we have any uh, any follow up from the fee- from the last episode? I mean, I think feedback's been pretty awesome. Um, thanks everybody for listening. Yeah, it's been so nice. We, uh, I, I think, people who follow us on Twitter would have seen we put a call out for anyone who wanted a Museo Punk sticker. Yeah. And we had so many people contact us, and a few people have started sending back photographs of them using their stickers on their laptops and things, which is so nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks to American Alliance of Museums for hooking us up with those stickers. We do have some more, uh, and we have some shipments going out at intervals. So. I guess if anybody wants a sticker, just uh, shoot us a note on Twitter at Museopunks, and and we'll make sure to get um, get one out to you. But I think we should probably do something for like the most creative display. Um, that's <laughs> like not it. like vandalism, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a great idea. So uh, yeah, send us your photos, and uh, if you don't happen to have Twitter, that's okay. We there are going to be other ways to contact us. I'm sure. Jeff, could people email us at Museopunks? Uh, they, they, when this airs, they will be able to. So yes, we'll set up something. Uh, just, uh, email punks at museopunks.org. Fantastic. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so what have you been up to for the last few weeks since we, since we started this show and since we last spoke? I've just been kind of checking out dinosaurs on Tinder. Really? <laughs> really? Um, yeah, I don't know. No, um. Things have been really busy. We've um, uh, at work. We're we're working on this chatbot project, which is pretty cool. Um, kind of breaking the mobile experience out of an app and into system level um, um, functionality of, on on our devices. So it's a year long project that we just kicked off. We're really excited about it. Yeah, and um, you've been doing some research into chatbots and things, haven't you? Well, yeah, it's interesting because the the whole project. Um, is supported by the Knight Foundation, and uh, they supported a year of research, development, um, human-centered design. So we're starting right from the top, right? So we did, um, we're doing literature reviews, we're doing kind of landscape analysis, and we're doing um, 
you know, field studies of what our visitors actually want, right? <laughs> That's one of those things that um, sometimes we don't have we don't have time for. But um, this project is nice because it builds all that into it. So we're taking the, f- the first couple weeks um, to to really kind of dive deep into those things. Yeah, hey, fortunate. Yeah, really, really interesting. I think it might be something that we should revisit. Uh, over the next coming months, sort of what you're finding out from that research? Because I think there is still this space for for us to investigate further things like chatbots and how they work and what that response is um, to a visitor and those sorts of things. So I'd love to hear more about this project as it as it starts to come yeah, together. Yeah, definitely. We're going to be kind of documenting the process in, in real time. So happy to chat about all that. How about you? The semesters are done, right? Semester is done. Uh, you know what? I so this might seem just very all strange. Like, are you just all like margaritas and bonbons this summer? Then? <laughs> uh, basically, I mean more mocktails than cocktails, but sure. <laughs> right, no. right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no margaritas for you. <laughs> no margaritas for me. No. You know, one of the nicest things I had never been through a graduation with my own students. This was the first time I went through that, and. Something that might seem really weird since I have been to university so much myself is I avoided all of my own graduations. Um, I'm not quite sure what it is. I just have always found this certain awkwardness in graduating. And so I wasn't sure how I was going to feel having to sort of be on stage and watch my, my students graduate. And I cannot tell you how moving it is to see people have reached a point of accomplishment and uh to really know your students and to have seen their journeys through learning and Mm. and then actually be able to see them graduate. I I was really shocked by how meaningful it was for me seeing, yeah, seeing my students actually all graduate. You know, I can only imagine, you know, just kind of having invested that much time and that much, um, you know, um, uh, just dedication to, to seeing them through and seeing their progress. And then that final kind of like culmination point, I'm sure has to be, um, uh, moving for them and, and you as kind of the, the one who has there been their fearless leader or one of their fearless <laughs> leaders. <laughs> one of, one of many, but yeah, I, I think I was really surprised by how, uh, impactful how how well you really do get to know students when you are working with them full time it's yeah. quite different from other times that I had taught where I'd really had a lot uh, different level of investment and then seeing that go through and it, it really got me thinking in fact about today's topic we're talking a lot about self-care but I was thinking about community care and the role of role of mentors and mm-hmm. how much uh, having a group of peers or a group of colleagues or, you know, the the importance of the communities that you surround yourself with and how much that makes a difference when we're starting to talk about things like self-care and just valuing yourself as well as your colleagues uh, and your communities uh, and how how much of a difference that makes in your your world. Yeah. So, you know, self-care is something that is very important and I'm really excited to kind of dive into that um, this episode, but I'm, I'm wondering, Suze, do you? I mean, we all get overwhelmed, and I'm wondering if you have any um, methods for kind of dealing with that. Um, you know, when we get overwhelmed with work or family or um, you know commitments, uh, overcommitments sometimes. I'm just wondering if you have any ways that you personally kind of uh, deal with that. Yeah, so many years ago, about a decade ago, I 
got so overwhelmed that I effectively had a, a little breakdown. I could mm-hmm. not cope with anything. And it was, I think, the first significant time that I had really understood um, what can happen to you physically, mentally, emotionally when everything builds up and you have not been making time and space for yourself and mm-hmm. when you have not been prioritizing what you need. Uh, that was the greatest thing to happen to me professionally in some ways because it made me much more aware of wh- what my end points are. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that I do now is just pay much more attention when I can start to feel those, um, the warning signs that, hey, mm-hmm. you've got to stop saying no to things. You have to stop uh, adding things to what you're doing. So, so saying no has become... Uh, I think the biggest thing for me, but it's not something I do naturally or easily. It's something I do once I start already pushing those those boundaries. Yeah. What about yourself? Yeah, I, um, you know, something over over commitment is something that I struggle with. Um, you know, especially I think kind of working in the areas of technology and innovation. Um, you know, it's so fast. It's so moves so fast that I feel like you know constantly have to stay up to date and constantly have to pay attention and yeah um it's part of what i love about it but it's also part of what contributes to um being over becoming overwhelmed really quickly um and i also think that you know you and i and many of the people listening work in this space museums or nonprofits, libraries whatever because we're passionate about them because we believe in them and so um, we tend to go that extra mile for them, um, which is again part of you know why we do this, right? But um, the, the, uh, you know, I, I definitely struggle with with going the extra mile and and being kind of overcommitted, overwhelmed. And so some of the things that I do um, on a tactical level to kind of like reset myself, you know, I I I, I step away from the computer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I I move away from screens a lot. Um, yeah, phone. I put the phone down. Sometimes I want to throw my phone in the ocean. Um, play. <laughs> yep. gu- I play guitar. I uh, you know go out in the yard with the kids. Walk the dog. Um, you know that type of kind of just stepping away from the environment. Um, the, the 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 digital environment. The screen based environment does a lot for me. Um, yeah, I definitely understand that. I I think. There are a number of times when I would really like to step away from social media, but as yeah. someone who teaches on that, I don't feel that yeah. I can. And so there's these there's these tensions that I think we're constantly fighting against. One thing, uh, being pregnant has actually made me much better with my self-care. It turns out that knowing that my self-care is going to directly impact the health mm-hmm. of someone yeah. else uh, has really significantly changed how... Uh, how I eat, how deliberate I am with, um, you know, things like taking vitamins and really sort of simple things, but they're things that you, I certainly don't prioritize for myself uh, a lot of the time. And now I have a reason to do that. And it has definitely helped sort of overall. And it's been, it's been such an interesting uh, experience for me to be putting someone else first in mm-hmm. looking after my own yeah. self, but actually to have that have a real impact. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting take on self-care. You know, it's, mm-hmm. self, it's self-care for like the next 
couple months. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so we're talking with um, some interesting people uh, related to this topic. Um, we're going to talk with Seema Rao, who is with Brilliant Idea Studio. She has some interesting ideas around the politics of self-care. And then um, we're welcoming back uh, Beck Tench, who... Um, was a guest on season one, uh, one of the live shows at, at MCN in 2013. But we're, we're asking her back to dive a little bit deeper into mindfulness and intention and, and caring for, for oneself when they're um, kind of potentially overwhelmed or, or overcommitted. Seema Rao is the principal and CEO of Brilliant Idea Studio, helping museums, nonprofits, and libraries bring their best ideas to light. Brilliant Idea Studio specializes in content development and strategy, change facilitation, and inclusive community building. With nearly 20 years of museum experience, Ms. Rao has extensive experience in interpretation and programming from leading content development for all audiences. She's used many of these teaching and drawing skills to facilitate meaning-making experiences in her recently published book, Self-Care for the Resistance, a workbook for the socially conscious and or stressed, available now through Amazon. And she's currently working on a follow-up book focused on self-care for museum workers. Seema, welcome to Museopunks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It is so, so great to have you here. So we're talking today about self-care, but if we're going to discuss this big topic, we should probably start with a, a bit of a definition. What is self-care? What do we mean by this term and how do we practice it? So I think it's an interesting question um, because it should be defined by yourself. So you, you might have a different definition than self-care. Part of it is knowing what makes you feel like you're a little feeling a little bit better. So I um, might have a very defini different definition than the both of you. I would guess if I asked you right now what makes you feel a little bit rejuvenated, each of the three of us would have a different definition. Mm -hmm. um, and so for, for me, in the book, I was sort of, and in all the writing I've been doing and all the things I've been thinking about, um, particularly it came out of my own stress, uh, uh, I guess, since November during political seasons. I've always been really political. I had to figure out what it meant to make me feel better. And so not, um, and my definition is, for example, different than my husband's. You know, I might really enjoy reading. And for me, that is, that's what it is. So both of us looked internally. I guess self-care, a good definition would be, you look internally, you think a little about what you think makes you feel better, you try it, um, and then, then you try it again. And as you get um, better at being able to check your emotions and understand how you feel, then you yourself build your best definition of it. I don't know. Does that make sense? Am I sort of talking around it? Yeah, no, I, I think it does. Um, Seema, so how how do you realize or identify when, when you're in fact in need of self-care? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say, um, so I was raised a Hindu and I don't usually think a lot about faith, but one of the things that that um, that my parents used to say is that um, suffering is partly because you you need to realize that you're suffering and you're suffering because you have desire and so while I'm not terribly religious I think one of the things I realized is that like hey I don't feel really good and it's not physical you know like I was just 
constantly agitated. I couldn't read the news. Um, my husband and I, this sort of actually the book grew out of this fact that my husband and I decided that we, in November we wouldn't listen to any media for 30 days. Wow. Anything. No yeah, Facebook, yeah. no Twitter, nothing. Wow. And it was because we felt like, our, I felt like I was going to crack. Like, you know, and I think that the thing about self-care, thinking about your emotions is your emotions and your physical self are so connected. And so you often have physical manifestations to me that make me feel bad. And for some people, it's different. I mean, I, you know, we're all different human beings. We deal with things differently. So you just figure out if it's either that your brain feels a little fried. I read this thing recently about self-care that involved um, this great graphic. It meant that you felt like your brain, the, the um, ideas in your brain were tipping out. Like it was truly full, like a cookie, you know, like a cookie jar was full. Um, and it could be that, or you could physically, for me, it felt like I was, I felt like I was constantly holding all the stress in my um, neck and in my shoulders. So I would say to answer your question, Jeff, you would have to answer when you mm. feel sort of like something is off. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I know recently I've been going through just some stressful things with some personal mm -hmm. changes in my life. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I get snappy. It, it's the time when I just know that I suddenly don't have room in myself to be generous anymore. And that's where I start to notice like, oh, hang on, something is out of whack here. The, you know, the force is out of balance within me. So I think... Uh, balance is a great word. Not, yeah. sorry, not to interrupt you. It's always no. hard when you can't see the person. But... um. Balance is a great word. I think it's like when you know what your best you is and if you're out of balance, you need to put yourself back towards your best you. So it could be for some people exercising more. In fact, um, I've been walking the dog and I'm not really an exercise person, but I've been doing that not because I wanted exercise, but because I wanted to be outside because I used to be outside more. Not, and so it's not it wasn't that I needed the exercises that I used to be outside more or whatever it is. And so it's balance. Is I think that's maybe self-care, maybe is when you take yourself to a point where you feel balanced again. Maybe that's a good definition. So you were talking about how, you know, the book started to come about. And I know that a lot of the really influential work around self-care has come out of marginalized communities, which consider sort of looking after the self and the body uh, when it's under attack from various forces as a political act. And in your own book, you do talk about this relationship between taking care of the mind and the body and honing political action. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about this relationship between politics and self-care and what that meant for you, but also what it means for other people. Um, so I think that's a, a great question. And it does, it's interesting because self-care has become like a real um, kind of buzzword right now. And I, I probably because so many people are, you know, and I'm, I was actually very careful. And I will say this even generally um, when, when, when I, I used to work in a museum for you know, almost 20 years. And I don't personally want to take a political stance in my public work job. You know, you have everyone has their own political stance. And so the book even doesn't take a decision on which, you know, what politics, what things in political life are the right things. Because again, it goes back to you defining yourself. Um, but for me, and I think that the thing about any activist, and there's, you know, a number of great quotes by people who are activists, and I pu pulled a few for the book, but I have like a whole slew of them um, that I just sort of look at every once in a while. Anybody who wants to make a change in the world can only do it if they're at their best. And so for me, I realized, you know, I have two young daughters and I wanted them to ra be raised. My family had, I grew up in a very political family for generations and um, my, my grandparents were raised during a colonial state. And so that, that 
there was always this belief that you have to make the best of the world. You have to do something good. But in order to do it, you have to basically be able to stand up. If you're so incapable, so upset, so emotional, you won't be able to do that. And so in order to make the best in the world, you have to be the best you. And so that's sort of where a lot of my ideas grew out of. And, you know, like I, I've made sure that my daughters understand and are able to articulate the best them. And that, that's something that I think self-care also says. It's not about, um, you know, jammy time on the weekends. That could be your self-care, but that's not the only thing. You have to be able to articulate um, and be able to act in ways that make you feel like you're doing the best things you should do. And for me, that happens to be political um, and uh, political in the broadest sense of things. You know, I think in some ways working in museums is a political act because we we're, politics in that you're making a stand for arts. And I do. That's an important part of you know my beliefs that I believe in in museums, I believe in cultural good. And so to be the best at doing that, that means that I have to not be burned out. And um, in fact, I, I think I went to um, working in a different kind of part of the museum world and the consultant world, partly because I knew I could make a better good if I was in a better place. And that's, that's sort of how I think of it. I think of any act that you do to make the world better as political. Yeah. And hearing you talk about politics and hearing you talk about being kind of open and honest about the, the buzzword mm-hmm. nature of, of um, self-care, do you think that it's recently emerged around this idea of politics? I mean, I, I think about after the election, like I kind of, I, I, like you, I, I took 30 um, days, 45 days and nice. just... Uh, tuned out you know um does this political nature feed into um how self-care has become such a dominant public idea you know i'm like i'm terribly suggestible like if you said to me right now we're not in the same room but um if we were in the same room and you said you know i have a cold i would definitely feel like i had a cold so I don't know, but I think that there is something about that, that people are very, humans are social and we're suggestible. And I think that negativity breeds negativity and a lot of political situations, um, you know, starting in November, but even before that, you know, the, the, there's so much media about the election and afterwards. And I also, so I think that there was a, a huge number of people who felt negative. And so my hope is that it's not just, you know, a buzzword, but actually that all collective, a huge number of people thought, wait a second, we're all out of whack and we all have to do this better. Um, so so I, I think it does grow out of it. I also think it probably grows out of other things like um, the fact that uh, so many, there's sort of the backlash about being, you know, on so much social media. I love social media, but then you also feel yourself isolated. And again, I think people put themselves in trying to find balance from these factors, so politics or social isolation and self-care is sort of the natural growth of it because people, I, I mean, we want we want to be the best us, you know, and I don't know if it's sort of, I'm trying to talk around it because I don't want anyone who, I'm not answering your question kind of on purpose um, yeah. because, no, no, because, no, no. Yeah. because I don't want people who aren't feeling political but also feel like they need to have self-care to feel like they can't because the thing about this book and about sort of in the the sort of feeling I've been in since the since about January since the March actually 
is that I want people to feel open arms. And for me, self-care is incredibly open. And so for me, it was political. And for me and a lot of my friends who were using these, before I put it into a book, my husband, my kids, my you know friends, I was giving them these sheets of paper and these practices that um, it was political for them. But somebody might come to this book and not have been political. And I don't want them to feel like... Um, then this is not for me, you know, and I've had people say, you know, there are people who want to opt out of politics and I might personally not be able to do that, but I don't want them to feel like this is not a good idea for them because self-care is a good idea for anybody. But certainly if you're somebody who's political, you'll, you're going to feel um, stressed and need it. Does that answer it? <laughs> yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things that I'm hearing you say, and when I, when I read about self-care, one of the ideas, there's often a relationship between self-care and empathy. And when I hear mm-hmm. you sort of say, oh, if we were sitting in the same room and I knew you had a cold, I would feel like I had a cold. That sense that um, there's constantly a giving uh, of ourselves to other people. And one of the ideas that this starts to bring up, prof- uh, specifically in a professional capacity is this idea of compassion fatigue so this notion that you are um, particularly if you're doing say work that's community focused and you're you're constantly seeking to uh, work with others and put yourself in the position of other people uh, we get this this notion whether it's personally or professionally of this sort of compassion fatigue from witnessing uh the pain of others from participating in the work of changing institutions. So even when it's not explicitly political, there is still this opportunity for exhaustion. So I guess that's then starts to make me wonder how we care for other people and make room for the needs of others, those whether we work with them or interact with them, those in our museums and coming into our museums, even when we're actually feeling quite exhausted. Oh, this is such a hard question. Um, Yeah, I know. And this is what I've been reading a lot of sort of the literature of empathy. I think in some ways, um, to go back to the previous question about politics, self-care is in some ways easier because you are yourself. I mean, admittedly, like you could be somebody who really has a lot of denial issues and you might have a really hard time figuring out what makes you happy um, or what makes you feel centered. And, you know, you have to work through all those, but you are with yourself all the time, right? So you eventually either do or don't. Um, but empathy and learning to connect to other people and then also being able to connect to them is so much harder because, you know, I can, you know, I think about people who maybe you want to be empathetic to, but they have so many barriers, you know, they just are so prickly and they're just so difficult. And you, and you know, it's hard for some people, like I would say for me, you know, we all have our personal failings. I would say for one of my personal failings is that while I'm trying to be empathetic, sometimes I can't be empathetic without putting it through my filter. And a lot of people, humans have this failing. So I don't think I'm alone, but, you know, learning to try to um, not own other people's grief, uh, not own other people's histories. I, you know, we all have things that make us, whatever, whatever it is that makes, makes your family, makes you, makes your experience um, feel somewhere in society, maybe marginalized, maybe you don't feel marginalized, but maybe if you feel empathetic to marginalized people, whatever it is. Um, and so I don't know exactly the answer. I would say though, the, the one thing I've been sort of thinking a lot about is where, where do you send, how do you put yourself in that position? Where do you put yourself in next to that person? Do you put the, yourself behind them? Do you put them yourself? Do you center yourself in the conversation? Is it all about you? Do you put yourself to the side? You know, those kinds of things that where you're basically reflecting on your actions are a good place to start. 
um, I, I think that empathy, a lot of people think that they're empathetic and they're in fact sympathetic. Hearing you talk about exhaustion and, you know, knowing the importance of balance on our lives, and, and I'm going to speak generally here, but I kind of get, I kind of feel like museums are really good at, at being additive, at adding yes. things on, on top of other things. And, you know, but we can't always do more because our resources aren't additive. So in, when we think about self-care, in your opinion, how can we strategically begin to start to take some things off of our plate? Yeah, that's a great question. And I will say that um, I don't know that I'm wonderful at saying no. I've tried to teach myself that. And um, one of the things, but I, I think that the first thing you need to do is be like, you have to do what I said. You have to say to yourself, okay, so this is not a strong suit. Some people are very good at saying no and really bad at saying yes. And that's also has its downsides. So you start by saying, okay, this is where I am on the no, yes, boundaries situation. This is where I am on um, deciding on where priorities are, because I think that's what you're sort of talking about. Like in a, in a museum, everybody, if you, especially if you're in a big comprehensive museum, and I know that at least the three of us have worked there, you know, lots of people who are listening obviously work on that, your audience is everybody. And if you work in an institution that has the name of the city in it, then that is your audience. You know, if you think about it, or if you have a website, then the whole world is your audience. You know, you could, you could be as expansive as people in, in the world are. And so then what you need to do is first, as a person, teach yourself um, to try to think systematically. Like, where can you do the best? Where is it that you probably aren't needed? Where is it that your department isn't needed? You know, and I say this, it sounds very cavalier, right? Because I have, I, I don't, um, there's probably people listening who are the lowest, you know, you're the person who doesn't get to make any decisions. And so then that's, you know, it's easier when you can make decisions, but actually when you're not making decisions, it's your self-care and your decisions matter more. I always think that institutions, um, the people who have the most face time with the visitors, you know, like visitor experience and guards, they're actually making the experience that people know more than any, almost, you know, even they, the directors don't, don't see the visitors as much as the guards do, usually. Right. Exactly. And so their decisions really matter. And so what they can do, for example, is um, they can say yes to having a positive moment there. They can say yes to um, just being in the moment and not checking their email at that moment. You know, it's sort of like instead of saying no to things, where can you say yes to? You know, it's like a code switching, and that's what I've been working a lot on, just personally, to make myself feel a little bit less out of control. And when I when I, I just left the museum, uh, my museum job in February, so you know, just starting to say, well, okay, I'm saying yes to this really good experience for our visitors, and no to these bad ones. You know, like you you you're just sort of trying to think, okay, it's a maybe imagine a um, a, a scale. You know, and you're thinking, okay, well, we could have 25 mediocre experiences or five really good ones. I could say no to five really terrible things and yes to two really wonderful things. You know, like as you think about your life and your choices, um, like I could have chosen to not be on this podcast or I could chose to be on this podcast. And for me, it was a really great choice because I get to talk to, you know, I was thinking, okay, I get to talk to two really cool people and I get, you know, get to talk about things I really like. And so instead of um, thinking no to something, I was thinking, what is the positive and what was the negative? We're happy you said yes. You know. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I am too. I am too. But I mean, you know, I mean, I, I'm thinking you guys, I mean, you guys 
you we all make choices and you you know you lead people you teach people and you know you if you think about all the times you're saying no often or and I said no certainly um every time that you probably said no in a thoughtful way you probably made a really good choice you know like you got to a certain place in your careers you've obviously made a lot of good choices i bet that the nose really came out of something very thoughtful it's funny you say that before i mentioned that i think when uh, the way that i know that my uh, that i'm out of balance is that i stop being generous I become much better at saying no at that moment. So I think my natural impulse is to say yes to things. And yet it's only once I start finding myself um, stressed and unable to imagine how I can fit this thing I'd like to say yes to into my life. That's when I get really good at saying no. So it's funny, I'm still not sure that then my balance is correct um, because it's not until I'm under pressure and under stress that I start to figure out when exactly to start saying no. So I don't know whether I need to be more deliberate earlier or uh, whether actually that is my way of being in balance. But it's true, right? Like the yes and no, it's it's hard. You know, it's hard because it's like, and I, I'm trying to think of other analogies other than the roller coaster, but you know, that there are so many experiences in life where if you're paying attention to it, then you're probably not at the best moment you know like you're just it's like when you're writing about love or you know you're just you're not you're not really in it and it's when you're really in it that you don't even realize it like so you know like I was saying that you know when you go up the roller coaster you're noticing you're going up the roller coaster when you go down you know you're going down but it's at that peak moment that you're not paying attention and you're just in the moment and that's sort of yes and no like if you are know that you're saying a lot of yes that means you're kind of conscious and so self-care is a lot about it is um, like the book or any of these books. And I mean, I, I, I like my book, but I think there's lots of good ways to do it. Um, but that, you know, and like I've been um, doing different activities every day at noon and I've been tweeting them um, when they're fun. And I think it's like I'm teaching myself. And so when you're teaching yourself, you're very conscious of it. Like you're sure. teaching yourself to say no or to say yes. And once you're actually doing it, you've sort of not noticed that you're now good at it. Yeah. So Seema, I've, I know you're working on a book about self-care specifically for museum professionals. Can you give us any tidbits there or um, leave us with any top tips maybe for, uh, for museum professionals that, you've, that you've, will be included in the book? Well, um, it's interesting. I've been talking to a lot of people. I've been doing a lot of interviews with people. I don't know if I'm going to be using them or not in there. I'm kind of figuring out how to do it uh, just to hear about other people's experiences so that it's not just all about me. Um, and so some of the things that I really liked that people were saying, and it's in, I'm not sure how I'm going to take this. It sort of goes back to um, some of the things we're talking about. That, like, humor and you were saying snapping, that sarcasm is for a lot of... I mean, I talked to a lot of museum people. I'm somewhat sarcastic. You know, humor, those are the kinds of things um, people have been sort of talking about, that sarcasm is, is sometimes a powerful tool for humor. And so that's one thing I'm sort of thinking about. But at the same time, it's sort of... I'm trying to be very open to that. So I, I... Because I'm taking other people's advice, I'm trying to be open to all of them, you know, empathetic and thoughtful. Um, so that's one. A bigger thing that I've been working a lot about is um, kind of taking the the tactics of appreciative inquiry, which is one of the sort of strategies people use for um, strategic planning, for example. And it, hmm. what it does is it starts with, and what I really like, and actually I'm hoping to... Um, try it out with some people 
uh, before I write the book, I'm going to do more case studies. I'm going to have people try these tactics more than just me. But um, so I'm hoping to try it out this upcoming month. But um, you start by kind of diagnosing a positive core. So in an institution, what you do is you work collectively and you all talk about what's best about your institution. And um, I'm guessing many people have been through strategic planning. Often you start with what's wrong with your institution. Um, and so appreciative inquiries flips that. And so I've been thinking a lot about this for self-care and I've been trying to find ex experiences that I could, um, the, the book will be like, my previous book and that has drawings and it's sort of like a workbook it's an active experience so I'm trying to figure out ways to frame this where you would start with your positive core and kind of talk about what you're best at in visual and in text and in, you know trying different ways of getting people at understanding what they're good at and then after that then you take a path that goes through um, your goals and then then sort of future casting so you know if it's good for an institution and I did do a little bit about this um, in the first book, I asked people to write their own personal mission statements as political people. Um, but, you know, even museum people, we, we, we all have such great ambition. And my goal for the book is that you're able, that I want people to be able to find out what's best about themselves um, away from just the mission. Because one of the, the reasons I wanted to write the book is that so many of us, and I would say myself included, that we often... Um, devalue ourselves for the mission of the institution we're working for and that you know and it and just in small ways you know like i would say to my husband you know on a sunday i had to work on a sunday the girls had music and you know i can't go to the music lesson i have to work well do i have to work i mean you know and i mean have to work i mean obviously we all have to make incomes but i also was choosing it and you know you think about all these choices that you make and i think i want people to feel if they have if they want to do that that's okay you know if you want to overwork that's your choice um, I want to make sure that people are making that choice consciously, that they know when they're choosing um, the mission and they know why they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a super interesting uh, way to, to even think about what the choices that we make and, and the priorities that you put forward, that actually we are often, you know, coming from mission-driven places. And that can be really hard when you care about the mission, but you also care about the people in your life and you care about yourself and you care about your community. And if in choosing one thing, it means sacrificing some of those other things, whether deliberately or not. You know, I think also for you as a as a professor, but also a teacher, right? You're you're prof you're obviously you know at a, at a university level, but you are their connection to the field. It's so important for, um, and I was an educator that for us in those positions, you know what you just said. It's so true that we have to be conscious of our choices because we're not just making our own choices. We're sort of modeling this for other people, um, and that that's a big part of it for me too. That that um, so many of the educators are the ones who are real burned out, and we're the ones who are really interacting with people. And you know, we want to make sure that the field is is healthy. And so, being healthy as teachers is really important. Yeah, definitely. Um, Seema, thanks so much for for taking the time to chat with us today. If people wanted to keep in touch with you or follow your work on progress on on the books um where can they do that so my blog is at brilliant idea slash blog and so that's a good place to find me i'm also on twitter and um kind of obsessive about it and i'm artless <laughs> i'm <laughs> aren't we all i know it's horrible but yeah um i'm artlust a-r-t-l-u-s-t 
Awesome. We will put links to um, your Twitter and your website in the show notes. And Seema, thanks again. Thank you, guys. uh, Enjoyed this. Have a great day. Beck Tench was formally trained as a designer at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's School of Journalism and Mass Communication, and has spent her career helping people and organizations of all types embrace risk-taking, creativity, and change through technology and personal space-making. Her work has been mentioned in the New York Times, National Public Radio, Scientific American, and several books and blogs. Some of her favorite work was done in partnership with the Museum of Life and Science, the Exploratorium, Michigan State University, Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History, and Illinois State Library. In 2016, Beck began her studies as a PhD student at the University of Washington's Information School, where she researches contemplative practice and information science. Beck, welcome to Museo Punks. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you back. Actually, you were uh, you were a guest at uh, during our first season and one of the live shows at MCN uh, in Montreal. Right. Yeah, That's it was right. a great time. We'll, we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. But it's so great to have you back on the show and it's part of season two. I'm glad that you're back. <laughs> we are too. We are too. Yeah, the museum nice world to needs you. Yeah. <laughs> more of you. It has you, but more of you. Hey, hey. But can I just say, because you're, I think, our first repeat visitor, I'm going to get to use the phrase friend of the pod for the first time ever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy about that. And also just having that status as the first repeat visitor is such an honor. Right on, right on. So, Beck, last summer, in summer of 2016, um, you and I exchanged Mm -hmm. handwritten letters kind of exploring the topic of mindfulness and intentionality in museums as part of the code words essay series. It was great. Um, And so much of that exchange was actually happening at a very turbulent time for me professionally. And and the simple act of kind of stopping to reflect in a mindful way um, with you really helped me kind of navigate that time in a a productive way. So first of all, thanks for for being a part of that with me. Um, And Second of all, let's start this discussion today kind of on the ground floor. So how did you personally begin down this path of of mindfulness and intention? Um, well, Jeffrey, actually, I'd like to to react for a second to what you just said to um, to to acknowledge that your decision to engage in that um, that exchange that we had was uh, I think a piece of wisdom on your part, and and I, I just hope that you, I hope you see it that way too. That that you needed that and you made that happen for yourself, yeah. um, and and that's I think kind of partly my story. It's something mm-hmm. that you can see in hindsight. Um, a lot of times I'm going along and um, <laughs> and just absolutely full of doubt and questions. Uh, those doubts and questions are evidence of the real work that I need to be doing, and it just doesn't often feel like um, it doesn't feel like it's the right thing at the time. And, and when I look back, I can see that that it's exactly what was needed, and I just basically need to continue to trust myself to do the right thing, make space for myself to do that work, and and it will happen. Hmm. So um, I think that what you 
what you experienced with code words and what I experienced and how we were there for each other and not really understanding in the moment what was needed um, is, is very evocative of what contemplative practice actually is. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it, it's an openness and a trust. This kind of reflective practice, um, is it rooted in kind of intuition or following your gut or um, learning from previous uh, experiences or a combination of all of that? I mean, how, like, how does it work for you? Yeah, for, uh, thank you for that, that qualifier for me. Um, I think it absolutely is intuition. Um, you know, there's something about what we are cultured to believe is okay with regards to work um, that is problematic. Um, and I think that I, I'm seeing that in this new field of academia Um, And it's certainly the case here where sort of rationality and science thinking and evidence and all those sorts of things um, are very important and, 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 um, and respected and you can't really, you you have to incorporate them in how you communicate. Otherwise you're not really seen as um, doing the right work. And I I felt that way in the museum world too. It's everywhere in our culture. Um, And so whenever you, 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 you do things, you say, when you make statements that make intuition real, for example, uh, you know, it's something that we get and we know, and at the same time, we don't feel like we can say. So I'm going to, I'm going to just flat out say, yes, it is intuitive and reflective. um, And that, that time spent respecting those two states, state of intuition, state of reflection, is critical and important time. And it's not critical and important because at the other end of it, you will be smarter or more productive or more efficient. It's critical and important because you're a human being living a life. And we have to incorporate these things. And the more and more I study about it, the more sure I am of that. And the larger the forces at play convincing us that we shouldn't seem. Um, and so I guess what I have to say about that right now is no one listening to this should feel um, guilty or ashamed or embarrassed that they don't value and don't make time for themselves because that's sort of what we're enculturated to do. And it's an act of um, resistance, an act of self-care, and a very, very important thing for us to be figuring out ways that we can tell each other how we feel about that and how we struggle with it and help enable each other to make that time, just like you and I did last summer. Beck, I find this incredibly interesting, this idea that um, sort of these embodied experiences, but also these really intentional and deliberate experiences are not necessarily valued and not valued in a lot of contemporary workplaces, but even whole professions. Why do you think that is? Is it a lack of trust in the body? Is it that it can't be rationalized in the same way? What do you think is at the root cause of this? 
to be really kind of frank and morbid, Suze, I think that the root cause of it is the fact that we walk around the planet aware that we're going to die. And we hmm. want to do whatever we can to distract us from that. And um, to sit with ourselves and to face... Because, you know, that's the problem, I think, with a lot of this mindfulness is a nice phrase I've heard mm. um, yeah. that, that yeah. gets kind of spread around, is um, it does not honor the fact that when you truly go there, it's hard and, and it doesn't necessarily feel good. And you really have to wrestle with truths, which is why at the beginning I said that, that statement about how doubtfulness is sort of a sign that it's working. Um, for me at least, because uh, con- just being in a contemplative space really just means being with myself in that moment, not distracting myself from um, the reality of any given moment. That reality may be suffering and sadness. That may reality may be boredom. That reality may be joy that I don't want to let go of and want to keep on forever, you know, whatever it is. And uh, there's just so many things in the world um, a lot of them exist on our phones <laughs> that are just yeah. just waving their hands ready to take us away from that reality and allow us to not really deal with the harder harder things in life. Yeah. So, Beck, um, one thing you wrote in the Code Words Exchange that really hit a nerve with me and along the lines of, of what we were just talking about is we need to stop elevating being busy and in demand and overcommitted. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in the museum slash nonprofit sector, you know, we pride ourselves on, on those things, doing more with less, right? Less mm-hmm. money, less staff, less time. What are some things that people can do to start to, you know, combat this culture of overcommitment for themselves? You know, are there any kind of... Um, simple exercises or just maybe ways that we can flip our thinking a little bit to start to um, honor honor the need for more space? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the answers, whatever they are, and I don't have them, um, but, but I have some ideas. I, I think that, that the answers reside in two domains. The one domain is the individual and the other domain is the collective. Um, and so I don't think change is possible without both. And, and I think that there's a starting point that's easier and that's with the individual. Sure. So my, I guess my my advice and my caution is that you cannot do it alone and there is so much to be gained from having connection with others with regards to wrestling with making time. I mean, we're talking very bare bones like how do you even give yourself 5 minutes? It's it like that same culture that I was talking about before that sort of distracts us all the time. It also gives us self-esteem. Um, and and it, it, it helps us feel like we are part of something and that we're important and that we belong in the world and that we're needed. And, 
and and those things aren't entirely you know Mr. Burns in some closet or some boardroom you know rubbing his hands together trying to convince us of things. It's just like we're creating this for ourselves because we need to know that we're okay. Yeah. And so and so we you know whenever I quit working at the Museum of Life and Science and went on a two year exploration of what work would look like if I were more spacious about things, I really wrestled with not feeling like a valued and valuable member of society because I didn't go to a workplace every day or wasn't busy in the ways that I used to be busy. It's very, um, like I said before, with, you know, engaging in contemplative practice and it being kind of like a hard thing, making time for yourself, um, and, 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 and letting go just even for a few minutes of this identity we build around being very needed is hard work. And, um, and so I, I recommend that, um, I think that that ritual is, is a very, very powerful thing we can borrow from some of the more successful religions of the world, um, who use ritual and community very, um, very successfully. Um, you know, my rituals honestly are, are very coffee focused. (laughs) Like I, I I love coffee. Coffee is, is something brings me, you know, just, it feels like, um, such consistent, reliable happiness. And, and so I take something that's already, and I think for some people that might be, uh, a, a dog that they walk or, or some, you know, commute with, with on their bicycle or, or with their child or whatever it is. But you've got this sort of centerpiece that feels reliably good. And then I, I tack on a contemplative intention to either proceed or, or go after that experience. So I, I ritualize things that are very easy to do in order to, to, to just, just bank a little time on one end or the other or a lot of time um, to to enable my myself a reliable space. I also, you know, right now we were talking uh, before we started recording about the fact that I'm on Bainbridge. Well, Bainbridge is far away from the University of Washington. It's a two-hour door-to-door commute. Uh, that is, of course, with bicycling. I'm bicycling and taking a ferry instead of uh, a bus or a train or whatever. Um, and I... I engage in this four hours a day, um, and 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 it is um, it is my life. It is not my commute. It's my life, and 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 I think that that shift in thinking to to realizing that what what exists in that time is is completely as valid an education and connection space and thinking space and being space as any other thing that I do. It's not getting me to school. It is my life that I am living. If we start looking at all these little like interstitial moments of our lives as, as potential possibilities to be open to connection, to be open to just noticing the world around us, there's actually a lot of, I think, time available for us to make choices that are more intentional than just sort of um, prescribing that this is an activity I do to get somewhere and so it no longer has value in, in, in kind of like uh, edifying me in any kind of way or, or allowing me some time and space. Yeah. You know, Beck, I'm, I'm going to keep kind of pointing back to this 
code words uh, essay um, from last year. And, you know, uh, I think one of the really interesting questions that came out of that for me was, um, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, what if our institutions matter a lot less than the individuals who are in relationship because of them? And we've been talking a lot Mm -hmm. about internal experiences, right? The work, the workplace and self-care in in that respect. But, you know, the reason that we work with museums is because of, of, of the impact it can have on the public and the visitors and the communities that our museums are a part of. So I'm wondering if you've noticed um, ways that museums or museum practitioners could potentially create spaces that can contribute to the emotional well-being of visitors and communities and the public. Um, are any interesting observations? You're now kind of being out uh, of the museum world and academia, looking in from 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 that view that you're noticing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so feel free to scratch this and edit it out if you if you find it's a little too controversial, but. Uh, my reaction to that uh, to that question is what I begin to see in my observations of the museum world and also in my memories of my experiences working for museums. Um, and this isn't you know whole cloth, but it is it is certainly there. Is a is a really strong growth mindset and always trying to figure out how to scale and um, stay alive and and by staying alive make money and I just I feel like that that sort of money driven attention driven um, perspective is it's it's it needs to be questioned and and we have a bit of uh we're it's a bit at at odds for 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 what we're trying to do i mean i felt that way specifically about technology in the science museum we pulled off some really cool projects um but we spent a lot of money and a lot of time trying to engage people in ways that just putting a, a table with some blocks on it could have some, in some ways done a better job. And, yeah. and, and I think that as we look at our institutions and our, um, our motivations for how we interact with folks, we have to really, I think, examine where is money and scale influencing and guiding what we're trying to do and really asking the question, what are the values that are informing that um, and being honest with the answers? I think that a lot of technology is built with really good intentions and it manifests in the world problematically. And so when we're thinking about our role as museum practitioners, uh, I think that we need to basically play the doubting game 
with our own work. We were, we were really good at playing the believing game. We're really good at convincing ourselves that we are creating something for the public that will enrich their lives and we know better. And it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be a bad idea for us to look at things from a different view and say, you know, what if this didn't exist? What could this person do uh, with their time? And how can we enable that? Or does this really, you know, in, in all the ways that we can look at it, does it really ultimately end in what we think it ends in? Um, it's so hard to be a technologist right now. Technology just it's out of control. Like when we put it into the world, people do things with it that we would never imagine. And that's in the best case. <laughs> like in a lot of cases, they don't do anything with it at all. Right. And, and, and so I just, I think that the complexity of that picture is something that we need to be engaging with and be a little bit more critical and honest about, to be frank. And um, I say that because if we are and we say we need to do less, then we have um, more agility and 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 more time to be thoughtful about how we do engage with people, and we don't just paint everything with this sort of magic that uh, this magical tech technology brush that uh, isn't necessarily gonna gonna do what we think it's gonna do. Yeah, it's sort of as you talk, it really reminds me of the importance of time and space and that you know there is everything we add into our institutions everything that we add into um, what we're trying to do that we ourselves are then feeling this rush of busyness is also things that other people that that our audiences that our visitors need to fit into their lives exactly well. exactly that's so exactly th what I was trying to say, Suze. Yeah, absolutely. So we we, sort of, we were just talking to uh, Seema Rao and we were talking a little bit about balance and the importance of balance in your life and, and, and saying yes and saying no. And I think bringing this sort of back to the audience and to, to the choices that we make, you know, we, we're sort of reaching a point where it's so difficult to fence off areas of our life because there is this sort of professional and personal blurring and there's this public and private blurring and so thinking about how we create um we actually simplify that for ourselves but also for the people who are coming to us how we give them maybe fewer choices but richer choices as opposed to just more and more choices whether that becomes a better use of sort of institutional time and resources as opposed to uh, trying to do everything and be everything for everyone, looking at how and where we're actually utilising our resources and how that brings a difference into their, in, into audiences' lives and where we can be most useful and most beneficial. Absolutely. And, you know, I recently gave a talk at, uh, at a conference called Art Summit. It's about creative placemaking. And I found myself wanting to really scaffold the talk, it was a workshop, really scaffold it and provide as much kind of like as much content as I could in those 90 minutes, you know, and then I, I kind of looked at what I'd done and realized that in my experience of, of, of moments where I felt like I was in capable hands of a facilitator and teacher, there wasn't 
there was there was an openness. There was not all this content totally structured and coming at me. There was a competency the person sitting in front of me to handle whatever would come up and then a big open invitation for that to occur. And, and, and so I just scrapped all of it and I went in with basically a really solid question and then had a great conversation over 90 minutes with people who were incredibly articulate and totally available to have a really good conversation because it was at the heart of, you know, um, what we're all thinking about. And, and, I, and I think that all of our institutions have a mission that is at the heart of what it is to be human, frankly. It's probably true for every single institution that is listening to this podcast. And that if we just trust people to show up and fill space that we provide, that space is so rare in life. It may, it may be a little awkward at first, but that awkwardness is beautiful. And if you just sit with it, I think that we have a lot to provide by just being open and trusting and providing space and not filling it because we are scared that people won't fill it for us. I mean, I think there's really something to be said for that. And I, I really appreciate that comment, Suze. You know, Beck, I think we could talk forever you about this there's so much to dive into and 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 explore but if listeners want to stay in touch or follow your work or um you know just kind of stay up to date with your your thinking and your practice where might they be able to to do that um well you know i'm very googleable uh becktench.com is sort of my 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 online home um and I have also started, a, <laughs> I've started a Slack channel uh, or Slack group that is about contemplative practice. And it's, 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 a, real, um, it's a real experiment. Hmm. I very well may just scrap it one day because it's so counterintuitive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, and it's actually one of the, the, the pri- primary conversations we're having right now about uh, on the Slack channel is about <laughs> the, the irony of using Slack to do something like this. But anyway, uh, so contemplatives, that's plural, um, .slack.com uh, is a place to uh, to go to. I don't know, actually, if you may need to um, go to my website to get an invitation to it. Um, so how about becktench.com slash slack, and I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do to make sure that that works to a sign-up form. Um, cool. But uh, that's also a place space to think together. Um, but, you know, to be, to be real, I, I'm, I'm in this space where people are talking and publishing and, and sometimes saying things when there's nothing to be said, mm-hmm. <laughs> just to yeah. get something out there. And so yeah. I kind of, you know, if you don't hear from from me online, uh, not meaning like if you contact me, I'll, I'll, of course, reply. But I'm trying to actually listen more than speak these days and just um, sit with my thoughts a little longer than I normally would and, and be very intentional about when I publish and why, just because of exactly what we're talking about. The more that we you know, kind of grope for attention, even if we think it's for a really good reason, the more we are filling 
uh, a finite resource. What, what, what the human brain and senses can attend to has limits that um, we're, we're approaching. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and so I, I, I kind of don't want to contribute to that as much as possible. So happy to meet up and you know, have conversations over email or Skype or whatever. And all that's on my website. But I'm trying to be a little bit more quiet these days. Well, we definitely appreciate you taking the time to um, speak and be unquiet with us today. <laughs> oh, um, of course. Of <laughs> Beck, course. thank you so much. I, I, I'm happy to anytime. I think the two of you are wonderful. I'm glad you're doing this work, and I'm honored to be a part of it. So I don't know about you, Jeffrey, but I feel really relaxed and really good having had those conversations. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, 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 taking time to reflect and step back and um, consider these things. You know, always puts me in in a in a positive frame of mind. So I'm glad that I'm glad that it, it's doing the same for you right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, there was a, a point that Beck made during her her um, discussion where she said people often can tell that she brings mindfulness practices into her world because she is exceptionally mindful even in her conversation and I do have that feeling just from talking to her of ah I can I can take this time and just be a little bit more deliberate myself yeah definitely there's something there's value in slowing down there's value in in being intentional um so show notes for this episode uh, can be found at museopunks.org um and this episode of museopunks is presented by the american alliance of museums thanks to aam for the support Suze, if somebody wants to stay in touch with us or tweet us where can they do that yeah, on Twitter, we are at MuseoPunks, uh, and we would love to hear from you. As I say, having the response from people over the last month has been amazing. It's so great to have so many people getting back in contact with us and new people connecting with us for the first time. So we would really love to hear from you. Yeah, it's We'd amazing. Love to Those hear, new people uh, are great. Totally. Absolutely. And, it's, it, you know, we would love to also just hear how you refocus recenter look after yourself when you're feeling emotionally drained or physically drained or when work gets overwhelming and if your museum has actually started to bring in any of these techniques i know some museums have done yoga classes for their staff and those sorts of things we would really really love to hear about it yeah, definitely. Tweet us at Museo Punks. And just a reminder that you can subscribe in iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or any other podcast um, app that uh, that is your podcast app of choice. And if you do enjoy the show, we'd really love um, you taking, the t- taking a moment to rate because that does help um, enormously with, with spreading the word. Um, Suze, episode yeah. 20, in, in the bag. In the bag, we are done. Uh, We will catch you again in a month's time from now, and we cannot wait.